Chapter 3 of McTeague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. McTeague by Frank Norris. Chapter 3. Once every two months, Maria Macapa set the entire flat in commotion. She roamed the building from garret to cellar, searching every corner, ferreting through every old box and trunk and barrel, groping about on the top shelves of closets, peering into rag bags, exasperating the lodgers with her persistence and importunity. She was collecting junks, bits of iron, stone jugs, glass bottles, old sacks, and cast-off garments. It was one of her perquisites. She sold the junk to Zerkow, the rags bottles sacks man, who lived in a filthy den in the alley just back of the flat, and who sometimes paid her as much as three cents a pound. The stone jugs, however, were worth a nickel. The money that Zerkow paid her, Maria spent on shirtwaists and dotted blue neckties, trying to dress like the girls who tended the soda water fountain in the candy store on the corner. She was sick with envy of these young women. They were in the world. They were elegant. They were debonair. They had their young men. On this occasion she presented herself at the door of old Grannis's room late in the afternoon. His door stood a little open. That of Miss Baker was ajar a few inches. The two old people were keeping company after their fashion. "'Got any junk, Mr. Grannis?' inquired Maria, standing in the door, a very dirty, half-filled pillowcase over one arm. "'No, nothing, nothing that I can think of, Maria,' replied old Grannis, terribly vexed at the interruption, yet not wishing to be unkind. "'Nothing I think of. Yet, however, perhaps, if you wish to look.' He sat in the middle of the room before a small pine table. His little binding apparatus was before him. In his fingers was a huge upholsterer's needle threaded with twine. A brad awl lay at his elbow. On the floor beside him was a great pile of pamphlets, the pages uncut. Old Grannis bought The Nation and The Breeder and the Sportsman. In the latter he occasionally found articles on dogs which interested him. The former he seldom read. He could not afford to subscribe regularly to either of the publications, but purchased their back numbers by the score, almost solely for the pleasure he took in binding them. "'What you all is sewing up them books for, Mr. Grannis?' asked Maria, as she began rummaging about in old Grannis's closet shelves. "'There's just hundreds of em in here on your shelves. They ain't no good to you.' "'Well, well,' answered old Grannis, timidly, rubbing his chin, "'I—I'm sure I can't quite say.' A little habit, you know, a diversion. Uh, uh, it occupies one, you know. I don't smoke. It takes the place of a pipe, perhaps. Here's this old yellow pitcher, said Maria, coming out of the closet with it in her hand. The handle's cracked. You don't want it. Better give me it. Old Grannis did want the pitcher. True, he never used it now, but he had kept it a long time and somehow he held to it as old people hold to trivial, worthless things that they have had for many years. Oh, that pitcher. Well, Maria, I... I don't know. I'm afraid... You see, that pitcher... Ah, go long, interrupted Maria Macapa. What's the good of it? If you insist, Maria, but I would much rather... He rubbed his chin, perplexed and annoyed, hating to refuse, and wishing that Maria were gone. Why, what's the good of it? persisted Maria. He could give no sufficient answer. That's all right, she asserted, carrying the pitcher out. Ah, uh, Maria, I say, you... You might leave the door... Ah, uh, don't quite shut it. 
It's a bit close in here at times. Maria grinned and swung the door wide. Old Grannis was horribly embarrassed. Positively. Maria was becoming unbearable. Got any junk? cried Maria at Miss Baker's door. The little old lady was sitting close to the wall in her rocking chair, her hands resting idly in her lap. Now, Maria, she said plaintively, you are always after junk. You know I never have anything laying round like that. It was true. The retired dressmaker's tiny room was a marvel of neatness. From the little red table, with its three gorum spoons laid in exact parallels, to the decorous geraniums and mignonettes growing in the starch box at the window, underneath the fish-globe with its one venerable goldfish. That day Miss Baker had been doing a bit of washing. Two pocket-handkerchiefs, still moist, adhered to the window-panes, drying in the sun. "'Oh, I guess you got something you don't want,' Maria went on, peering into the corners of the room. "'Look a-here what Mr. Grannis give me,' and she held out the yellow pitcher. Instantly Miss Baker was in a quiver of confusion. Every word spoken aloud could be perfectly heard in the next room. What a stupid drab was this Maria. Could anything be more trying than this position? "'Ain't that right, Mr. Grannis?' called Maria. "'Didn't you give me this pitcher?' Old Grannis affected not to hear. Perspiration stood on his forehead. His timidity overcame him as if he were a ten-year-old schoolboy. He half rose from his chair, his fingers dancing nervously upon his chin. Maria opened Miss Baker's closet unconcernedly. "'What's the matter with these old shoes?' she exclaimed, turning about with a pair of half-worn silk gaiters in her hand. They were by no means old enough to throw away, but Miss Baker was almost beside herself. There was no telling what might happen next. Her only thought was to be rid of Maria. "'Yes, yes, anything. You can have them, but go, go. There's nothing else, not a thing.' Maria went out into the hall, leaving Miss Baker's door wide open, as if maliciously. She had left the dirty pillowcase on the floor in the hall, and she stood outside, between the two open doors, stowing away the old pitcher and the half-worn silk shoes. She made remarks at the top of her voice, calling now to Miss Baker, now to old Grannis. In a way she brought the two old people face to face. Each time they were forced to answer her questions, it was as if they were talking directly to each other. "'These here are first-rate shoes, Miss Baker. Look here, Mr. Grannis, get on to the shoes Miss Baker give me. You ain't got a pair you don't want, have you? You two people have less junk than anyone else in the flat. How do you manage, Mr. Grannis? You old bachelors are just like old maids, just as neat as pins. You two are just alike, you and Mr. Grannis. Ain't you, Miss Baker?' Nothing could have been more horribly constrained, more awkward. The two old people suffered veritable torture. When Maria had gone, each heaved a sigh of unspeakable relief. Softly they pushed to their doors, leaving open a space of a half-dozen inches. Old Grannis went back to his binding. Miss Baker brewed a cup of tea to quiet her nerves. Each tried to regain their composure, but in vain. Old Grannis's fingers trembled so that he pricked them with his needle. Miss Baker dropped her spoon twice, their nervousness would not wear off. They were perturbed, upset. In a word, the afternoon was spoiled. Maria went on about the flat from room to room. She had already paid Marcus Schuller a visit early that morning before he had gone out. Marcus had sworn at her, excitedly vociferating. No, by damn. No, he hadn't a thing for her. He hadn't for a fact. It was a positive persecution. Every day his privacy was invaded. He would complain to the landlady he would. He'd move out of the place. In the end, he had given Maria seven empty whiskey flasks, an iron grate, and ten cents, the latter because he said she wore her hair like a girl he used to know. After coming from Miss Baker's room, Maria knocked at McTeague's door. 
The dentist was lying on the bed lounge in his stocking feet, doing nothing apparently, gazing up at the ceiling, lost in thought. Since he had spoken to Trina Seep, asking her so abruptly to marry him, McTeague had passed a week of torment. For him there was no going back. It was Trina now, and none other. It was all one with him that his best friend, Marcus, might be in love with the same girl. He must have Trina in spite of everything. He would have her even in spite of herself. He did not stop to reflect about the matter. He followed his desire blindly, recklessly, furious and raging at every obstacle. And she had cried, no, no, back at him. He could not forget that. She, so small and pale and delicate, had held him at bay, who was so huge, so immensely strong. Besides that, all the charm of their intimacy was gone. After that unhappy sitting, Trina was no longer frank and straightforward. Now she was circumspect, reserved, distant. He could no longer open his mouth. Words failed him. At one sitting in particular, they had said but good day and goodbye to each other. He felt that he was clumsy and ungainly. He told himself that she despised him. But the memory of her was with him constantly. Night after night he lay broad awake thinking of Trina, wondering about her, racked with the infinite desire of her. His head burnt and throbbed. The palms of his hands were dry. He dozed and woke, and walked aimlessly about the dark room, bruising himself against the three chairs drawn up at attention under the steel engraving, and stumbling over the stone pug-dog that sat in front of the little stove. Besides this, the jealousy of Marcus Schuller harassed him. Maria Macapa, coming into his parlor to ask for junk, found him flung at length upon the bed lounge, gnawing at his fingers in an excess of silent fury. At lunch that day, Marcus had told him of an excursion that was planned for the next Sunday afternoon. Mr. Seep, Trina's father, belonged to a rifle club that was to hold a meet at Schwitzen Park across the bay. All the Seeps were going. There was to be a basket picnic. Marcus, as usual, was invited to be one of the party. McTeague was in agony. It was his first experience, and he suffered all the worse for it because he was totally unprepared. What miserable complication was this in which he found himself involved? It seemed so simple to him, since he loved Trina, to take her straight to himself, stopping at nothing, asking no questions, to have her, and by main strength to carry her far away somewhere, he did not know exactly where, to some vague country, some undiscovered place, where every day was Sunday. "'Got any junk?' "'Huh? What? What is it?' exclaimed McTeague, suddenly rousing up from the lounge. Often Maria did very well in the dental parlors. McTeague was continually breaking things which he was too stupid to have mended. For him, anything that was broken was lost. Now it was a cuspidor, now a fire shovel for the little stove, now a china shaving mug. Got any junk? I don't know. I don't remember, muttered McTeague. Maria roamed about the room, McTeague following her in his huge, stockinged feet. All at once she pounced upon a sheaf of old hand instruments in a coverless cigar box, pluggers, hard bits, and excavators. Maria had long coveted such a find in McTeague's parlor, knowing it should be somewhere about. The instruments were of the finest tempered steel and really valuable. "'Say, doctor, I can have these, can't I?' exclaimed Maria. "'You got no more use for them.' McTeague was not at all sure of this. There were many in the sheaf that might be repaired, reshaped. "'No.' No, he said, wagging his head. But Maria Macapa, knowing with whom she had to deal, at once let loose a torrent of words. She made the dentist believe that he had no right to withhold them, 
that he had promised to save them for her. She affected a great indignation, pursing her lips and putting her chin in the air as though wounded in some finer sense, changing so rapidly from one mood to the other, filling the room with such shrill clamor that McTeague was dazed and benumbed. "'Yes, all right, all right,' he said, trying to make himself heard. "'It would be mean. I don't want em. As he turned from her to pick up the box, Maria took advantage of the moment to steal three mats of sponge gold out of the glass saucer. Often she stole McTeague's gold, almost under his very eyes. Indeed, it was so easy to do that there was but little pleasure in the theft. Then Maria took herself off. McTeague returned to the sofa and flung himself upon it face downward. A little before supper time, Maria completed her search. The flat was cleaned of its junk from top to bottom. The dirty pillowcase was full to bursting. She took advantage of the supper hour to carry her bundle around the corner and up into the alley where Zerkow lived. When Maria entered his shop, Zerkow had just come in from his daily rounds. His decrepit wagon stood in front of his door like a stranded wreck. The miserable horse, with its lamentable swollen joints, fed greedily upon an armful of spoiled hay in a shed at the back. The interior of the junk shop was dark and damp, and foul with all manner of choking odors. On the walls, on the floor, and hanging from the rafters was a world of debris, dust-blackened, rust-corroded. Everything was there, every trade was represented, every class of society, things of iron and cloth and wood, all the detritus that a great city sloughs off in its daily life. Zerkow's junk shop was the last abiding place, the almshouse of such articles as had outlived their usefulness. Maria found Zerkow himself in the back room, cooking some sort of meal over an alcohol stove. Zerkow was a Polish Jew. Curiously enough, his hair was fiery red. He was a dry, shriveled old man of sixty-odd. He had the thin, eager, cat-like lips of the covetous, eyes that had grown keen as those of a lynx from long searching amidst muck and debris, and claw-like, prehensile fingers, the fingers of a man who accumulates but never disperses. It was impossible to look at Zerkow and not know instantly that greed, inordinate, insatiable greed, was the dominant passion of the man. He was the man with the rake, groping hourly in the muck heap of the city for gold, for gold, for gold. It was his dream, his passion. At every instant he seemed to feel the generous solid weight of the crude fat metal in his palms. The glint of it was constantly in his eyes. The jangle of it sang forever in his ears as the jangling of cymbals. "'Who is it? Who is it?' exclaimed Zerkow as he heard Maria's footsteps in the outer room. His voice was faint, husky, reduced almost to a whisper by his prolonged habit of street crying. "'Oh, it's you again, is it?' he added, peering through the gloom of the shop. "'Let's see. You've been here before, ain't you? You're the Mexican woman from Polk Street. Macapa's your name, hey?' Maria nodded. "'Had a flying squirrel and let him go,' she muttered, absently. Zerkow was puzzled. He looked at her sharply for a moment, then dismissed the matter with a movement of his head. "'Well, what you got for me?' he said. He left his supper to grow cold, absorbed at once in the affair. Then a long wrangle began. Every bit of junk in Maria's pillowcase was discussed and weighed and disputed. They clamored into each other's faces over old Grinnes's cracked pitcher, over Miss Baker's silk gaiters, over Marcus Schuller's whiskey flasks, reaching the climax of disagreement when it came to McTeague's instruments. "'Ah, no, no,' shouted Maria. Fifteen cents for the lot. I might as well make you a Christmas present. Besides, I got some gold fillings off him. Look at him. Zerkow drew a quick breath as the three pellets suddenly flashed in Maria's palm. 
There it was, the virgin metal, the pure, unalloyed ore, his dream, his consuming desire. His fingers twitched and hooked themselves into his palms. His thin lips drew tight across his teeth. "'Ah, you got some gold,' he muttered, reaching for it. Maria shut her fist over the pellets. "'The gold goes with the others,' she declared. "'You'll give me a fair price for the lot, or I'll take em back.' In the end a bargain was struck that satisfied Maria. Zerkow was not one who would let gold go out of his house. He counted out to her the price of all her junk, grudging each piece of money as if it had been the blood of his veins. The affair was concluded. But Zerkow still had something to say. As Maria folded up the pillowcase and rose to go, the old Jew said, "'Well, see here a minute. Well, you'll have a drink before you go, won't you? Just to show that it's all right between us.' Maria sat down again. "'Yes, I guess I'll have a drink,' she answered. Zerkow took down a whiskey bottle and a red glass tumbler with a broken base from a cupboard on the wall. The two drank together, Zerkow from the bottle, Maria from the broken tumbler. They wiped their lips slowly, drawing breath again. There was a moment's silence. "'Say,' said Zerkow at last, "'how about those gold dishes you told me about the last time you were here?' "'What gold dishes?' inquired Maria, puzzled. "'Ah, you know,' returned the other. "'The plate your father owned in Central America a long time ago. "'Don't you know? It rang like so many bells. "'Red gold, you know, like oranges.' "'Ah,' said Maria, putting her chin in the air "'as if she knew a long story about that, "'if she had a mind to tell it. "'Ah, yes, that gold service.' "'Tell us about it again,' said Zerkow, "'his bloodless lower lip moving against the upper, "'his claw-like fingers feeling about his mouth and chin. "'Tell us about it. Go on.' He was breathing short. His limbs trembled a little. It was as if some hungry beast of prey had scented a quarry. Maria still refused, putting up her head, insisting that she had to be going. "'Let's have it,' insisted the Jew. "'Take another drink.' Maria took another swallow of the whiskey. "'Now go on,' repeated Zerkow. "'Let's have the story.' Maria squared her elbows on the deal table, looking straight in front of her with eyes that saw nothing. "'Well, it was this way,' she began. "'It was when I was little. "'My folks must have been rich. "'Oh, rich into the millions. "'Coffee, I guess. "'And there was a large house. "'But I can only remember the plate. "'Oh, that service of plate. "'It was wonderful. "'There were more than a hundred pieces, "'and every one of them gold. "'You should have seen the sight "'when the leather trunk was opened. "'It fair dazzled your eyes. "'It was a yellow blaze like a fire, "'like a sunset, such a glory.' all piled up together, one piece over the other. Why, if the room was dark, you'd think you could see just the same with all that glitter there. There wanted a piece that was so much as scratched. Every one was like a mirror, smooth and bright, just like a little pool when the sun shines into it. There was dinner dishes and soup tureens and pitchers, and great big platters as long as that and wide, too, and cream jugs and bowls with carved handles, all vines and things, and drinking mugs, every one a different shape, and dishes for gravy and sauces, and then a great big punch bowl with a ladle, and the bowl was all carved out with figures and bunches of grapes. Why, just only that punch bowl was worth a fortune, I guess. When all that plate was set out on a table, it was a sight for a king to look at. Such a service as that was. Each piece was heavy, oh, so heavy, and thick, you know, thick, fat gold, nothing but gold, red shining pure gold, orange red, and when you struck it with your knuckle, ah, you should have heard. No church bell ever rang sweeter or clearer. It was soft gold, too. You could bite into it, 
and leave the dent of your teeth. Oh, that gold plate! I can see it just as plain. Solid, solid, heavy, rich, pure gold. Nothing but gold, gold, heaps and heaps of it. What a service that was! Maria paused, shaking her head, thinking over the vanished splendor. Illiterate enough, unimaginative enough on all other subjects, her distorted wits called up this picture with marvelous distinctness. It was plain she saw the plate clearly. Her description was accurate, was almost eloquent. Did that wonderful service of gold plate ever exist outside of her diseased imagination? Was Maria actually remembering some reality of a childhood of barbaric luxury? Were her parents at one time possessed of an incalculable fortune derived from some Central American coffee plantation, a fortune long since confiscated by armies of insurrectionists or squandered in the support of revolutionary governments? It was not impossible. Of Maria Macapa's past, prior to the time of her appearance at the flat, absolutely nothing could be learned. She suddenly appeared from the unknown, a strange woman of a mixed race, sane on all subjects but that of the famous service of gold plate, but unusual, complex, mysterious, even at her best. But what misery Zerkow endured as he listened to her tale, for he chose to believe it, forced himself to believe it, lashed and harassed by a pitiless greed that checked at no tale of treasure, however preposterous. The story ravished him with delight. He was near someone who had possessed this wealth. He saw someone who had seen this pile of gold. He seemed near it. It was there, somewhere close by, under his eyes, under his fingers. It was red, gleaming, ponderous. He gazed about him wildly. Nothing, nothing but the sordid junk shop and the rust-corroded tins. What exasperation, what positive misery, to be so near to it, and yet to know that it was irrevocably, irretrievably lost. A spasm of anguish passed through him. He gnawed at his bloodless lips, at the hopelessness of it, the rage, the fury of it. Go on, go on, he whispered. Let's have it all over again. Polished like a mirror, hey, and heavy? Yes, I know, I know. A punch bowl worth a fortune. Ah, and you saw it, you had it all. Maria rose to go. Zerkow accompanied her to the door, urging another drink upon her. Come again, come again, he croaked. Don't wait till you've got junk. Come any time you feel like it, and tell me more about the plate. He followed her a step down the alley. How much do you think it was worth? he inquired anxiously. Oh, a million dollars, answered Maria, vaguely. When Maria had gone, Zerkow returned to the back room of the shop and stood in front of the alcohol stove, looking down into his cold dinner, preoccupied, thoughtful. A million dollars, he muttered in his rasping, guttural whisper, his fingertips wandering over his thin, cat-like lips. A golden service worth a million dollars, a punch bowl worth a fortune, red gold plates, heaps and piles. God! End of chapter 3